0: You're listening You're listening You're listening You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more
1: If you want to learn about the music industry And you don't know where to go Tune in to WP88.7 Brave New Radio We got managers, producers, record labels concert promoters galore You never know
2: Wednesday at 8 p.m. Yalla,
1: yalla, yalla You you or I never fall I am a rising tide I rise against the mong Yalla, yalla, yalla I am a rising tide Don't let the olive branch fall Yalla, yalla On me Brothers and sisters On me Keep our composure, you'll see. Ready like soldiers.
0: Smile like baby the So Peter, say
2: three,
1: two,
0: one. Three, two, one. Oh, here we go! Music Biz 101 on Bravo Radio. I'm your professor, David Kirk-Philip, along with Dr. Esteban. Emeritus. Yes, that is right. The Emeritus Marconi. By the time people are hearing this, he has retired. He has long. Right. He is on a boat near an island somewhere not here. So good for you, Doctor Esteban. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we have guests. We have students. We have awesome things going on. But before we do that, we should mention listeners. Go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on the Instagram that featured a fotchbook book at musicbiz101wp. This podcast you're probably listening to on iTunes or SoundCloud. Maybe you're listening to us live, even though it's pre-recorded, on Brave New Radio, 88.7 FM, at campus Way William Patterson University. Dr. Stavon, should we give thanks? We better. Let us do give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and KISS. Peter, are any of these artists represented by AGI?
2: uh, No, no, none of those artists are represented by AGI.
0: None of them. Okay, it's time for you to do some poaching. Everybody appreciates a (laughs) good poacher. Uh, For any of those artists, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB-CPA.com when you're ready. And our thanks go to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped many professionals all around the world manage their reti- uh, investments, plan out for the retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine. Right. They at forefront.com.
3: Leaves the last eye off for savings.
0: Which you would always want to do. And of course, the University of William Patterson's music business program ranked one of the best in all of the world by a million billboard for three years in a row and for the last six years. And that's a winning percentage of 660 and gets us in the cleanup position for the winning team in the World Series. And that's where we are. So Jade Onori, who is here, our student co-host. Jade has a guest from Artist Group International, AGI, which uh, AGI sounds like an insurance company until you say Artist Group International, then you realize, oh, cool, they paint. Great. But Jade, okay, talk about Peter and uh, give a little intro and then start with your third degree.
4: He's an agent at AGI. I'm pretty sure he's been there his whole career, right out of college, right? That is correct. So to start off, just tell listeners like what exactly you do as your role as an agent in the company.
2: Uh, so as an agent, I represent um, a, a roster of clients that uh, you know, go across the music, comedy, um, and even some production worlds. Uh, and I'm responsible for negotiating and booking their tours, uh, in, mostly in North America, and a, ha- a handful of artists throughout the world.
0: Okay. Who, do you represent? Who do you represent, Peter?
2: Uh, my client list, uh, all over the place. I represent uh, Motley Crue. I represent Hall & Oates, uh, Kid Bop on a kids program. I represent comedians Andrew Dice Clay and uh, Jim Brewer. And uh, I represent um, Megadeth and uh, Bad Wolves and Yes and Asia and a a list more. But probably I have a client list of probably about 25 artists.
4: Great. Now, when you're booking tours, what other artist team members do you find yourself most having to interact with?
2: Well, you know, each each artist is different, right? So I re- we work most closely with uh, the artist management teams, obviously. Uh, some artists we work directly with, they're very involved in their touring and very involved in their careers, so we speak directly to them. Um, and then, you know, you, you in the booking world, you have relationships and have to deal with, you know, uh, occasionally the lawyers when you're dealing with legal contracts and, and that kind of stuff. You deal with the business managers when you're dealing with budgets. Um, so there's there's a there's a team of people who uh, who represent the artists that all work in conjunction to to make sure uh, that their touring career is is going in the right direction.
4: Can you tell us some criteria you look for when you sign a new client?
2: Uh, it's hard, right? So there's there's a lot of different ways and different different models people have for um, for signing clients. Uh, it used to be a lot different. When I first started, and I've been, I've been at AGI for almost, I guess, 25 years at this point, um, it used to be all the new talent and the new signs were being driven by record labels, right? You were, you were trying to stay very tight with the record labels and, and who their new big projects were, what they were gonna start pushing, what they had a big marketing and radio budget behind, and, and, and they really drove the A&R world and, and, and band development world. Um, it's changed a lot since then. Uh, now, it's, a lot of it has to do with, you know, you don't need the record labels as much. Record labels are still very important, obviously. But you, you can have some success tracking bands that are unsigned that have strong digital numbers, social numbers, streams, downloads, all that kind of stuff. It's a whole different world on the developing side. So that, that's one area. You look for, you know, young developing artists. I have um, I've, I've made my career more on working with established artists. Um, and trying to do the best job that I can on bands that have uh, existing touring careers, and and have been very fortunate that I've done a good enough job with a lot of my clients that I've uh, had an influx of additional clients and that already have established touring careers that see what we've been able to do, AGI or you know, and, and me as their agent. Um, so, you know, when I'm looking for new clients, a lot of times it's it's, it's clients that are unhappy with their certain situation or, or or not happy with the way that their touring career is being developed. Um, and they're asking to come over to us and see if we can make a difference in their careers.
4: How do you guys determine when an act is ready to play a larger scale venue than when you first signed them on?
2: Uh, it's, you know, it's, again, it's, it's watching the signs. It's, it's, uh, you know, back in the day, again, it was what kind of support you had from radio and, and, and marketing, how you were going to be able to market the band. Uh, and now it's a little bit different. You can, you have the other indicators you know, Spotify streams and YouTube views and stuff like that. Um, and then a lot of it is also uh, just a kind of sometimes a gut feeling, it, it, looking at all those indicators and, and knowing what we do for a living and, and knowing what some of those indicators can represent. Um, we can sometimes, you know, do a professional guess as to what we think they're going to be worth and when they move up. Perfect example. Um, about, I guess it's been about five years ago, we were asked to represent uh, the Kids' Bop brand. And Kids' Bop at the time were doing a lot of clubs and, you know, small theaters and little clubs. um, And they just weren't growing out of that business. Uh, And so we got approached by the Kids' Bop team and said, Hey, here's our history. What do you, what do you think of this? What are we missing? And so we took a look at their history. Um, Knowing that the Kids' Bop brand is a huge brand. I mean, at the time it had, it still does, has its own serious XM radio station. Um, It's it's big TV campaigns. Every kid in the world has, has, you know, volumes one through 37. And, and, and so they, they had some brand, but they couldn't translate on the to touring. So we looked at, um, we, there was one show on the history that, that stuck out to me. It was the the, the band, uh, the kids had played up in Bethel Woods, New York at the amphitheater up there. And they had did, I think the first year and they did like 3,500 people. It was the first time they played that venue. And uh, I looked at it and it stuck out because everything else was in that 500, 700, 800 range of the ticket sales. um, And it stuck out to me. And, and, and we knew at that point that the the brand when put into a bigger venue with a larger marketing budget, right? You know, typically in the clubs, you could be spending $2,500 to $7,500 in marketing and that's on the high end of some of these small venues. Um, it's very hard to saturate the market and reach your audience. Uh, but when they step, stepped up into this bigger venue in Bethel Woods, they had a substantial advertising budget, 35, you know, $35,000. They, they had real, you know, a real database of, of people who, uh, who had been in the amphitheater before, and so we had a sneaking suspicion at that time that we could uh, we could mimic that show. And so we went and um, booked a handful of Live Nation amphitheaters at the time. Uh, and uh, I think the first year we we originally booked five, ended up doing twelve, averaged probably six 000, seven thousand people in the first year go through, um, and then beyond that, ended up doing as uh, as the business progressed after the year after. I think we did twenty five the next year, and now we're doing. You know, we were doing 65 shows in, in a mixture of amphitheaters and arenas. And that was just recognizing, again, that the, the value was there. You just had to figure out how to saturate the market with people, letting, you know, letting people know that the, the show was going to be there and telling people what the show was and explaining it to them. So there's so many different types of indications as to when a band's ready. Um, some of it, unfortunately, is, is a gut feel
3: and taking a shot. The, um, that's sort of like an opposite for many bands that want to play a bigger venue and they're not ready and then you have this fight to try to tell them that a sellout is much better than an empty
2: yeah it's and it's it's funny it's um there's 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 two thoughts on that right and and so here's a here's a question i'll pose back to you guys thought, for right would you rather go in and sell out 3,500 seat venue right or would you rather go into an 8,000 seat venue and do 6,000 people
1: yeah,
2: Right. And it's a, it's a big, it's a big question, right? And, and obviously part of that decision comes down to the finances. Where is your money? You know, you go into the bigger venues, you have bigger expenses and you don't incrementally make that much more money uh, depending on how many people you're doing. And there's, and there's a, there's a real you know financial formula you're going to follow and take a look at that. Um, but, and then there's the perception. Okay. So if I told you, Hey, band X is going to go sell out 3,500 seats. That's fantastic. That's great. Sold out. It's amazing. But that same band goes into uh, you know, the Prudential Center, in North New Jersey, and sells 7,000 seats and out of out of 8,000. It's not a sellout, uh, but the perception is now you've created a perception that this band is an arena band. So there's a balancing act about when you do that and how you do that, and you don't necessarily need to make that jump into an arena or to an amphitheater uh, with the the feeling or the perception that you have to sell it out. You just have to again, um, you have to make sure you can protect the perception perception is a big thing with me and how I treat my clients right you have to be able to tell the story not only uh, from a marketing and a PR standpoint but just just from a fan perception you know you let the fans know here's a, here's another another quick example um, I was asked to take over several years ago Hole and Oaks um, and and Daryl and John's business had been fantastic they were doing that sellout large theater business um, and it was it was great and and when i met with them and the manager they said well what do you what do you want to do what do you think you can do differently and i again i looked at it and i said you know i think hall notes is Darryl hall and John Notes are are a very big uh band they're they're a very big act and i i convinced them to take a shot at playing madison square garden and and before that they had only done uh, two beacons right so they had never gotten to that level but it was just something about i said if we if we take madison square garden and we promote it and market it correctly. Um, and, and in fact, we 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 took the we had gotten the offer from the promoter. Um, we had actually said, you know what, we're going to take a little bit less money. I want you to take some of that money you were going to pay the band, and we want to put that into into the advertising budget. So we had a very robust advertising budget, um, and we did some crazy old school techniques where we did a we did a snipe campaign with posters and great artwork and all this stuff. Um, and we went on sale, and the show basically blew out in three days, sold out, clean. Um, again, and that was a launching pad for Hall & Oaks to really, their career to really take off now where they're doing arenas and amphitheaters and, you know, 10,000 plus people a night. Again, perception. We were able to kind of figure out how to, um, how to let the audience know this band is bigger than everybody had thought they
0: were and, and everything followed too. So even back in their real uh, recorded music heyday, I'll call it, you know, um, mid '80s, for example, they weren't selling Madison Square selling at Madison Square Garden back then. I, you know, they did some arena business back in the '80s, but it
2: was not consistent. It was no, they, mm-hmm. they never had a consistent arena business.
0: That's a surprise because they were the you know at the time they were the biggest selling duo uh, of all time. You know, They you know, still are during from like '81 or whatever through '91 or something, ten years of like. On the recorded side, you know, doing tremendous work, and now obviously it's live, but huh? Yeah, very interesting stuff. When you talk about going um, to an arena, you can also have them play an arena like we had Sean from the Prudential Center on not too long ago, and things that arenas can do, they can cut them down, they can take a 20,000 seat arena. Uh, put black curtains over the whole top row and make that 20,000 to 12,000, for example, or 8,000, like you said, and make it still seem intimate and make it a sellout. And the perception for the artist playing on the stage is that it's sold out because of that. And then you say it's sold out because in this way that we're selling it out, we're only putting this many seats uh, for sale anyway, because it's a cut down version. So um, there's that. So, uh, So how do you build that part in in terms of when are we going to do an arena, but a cut down version of the arena versus
1: not? Well, a
2: lot of these arenas also are scalable, right? So, so you can start off. Prudential Center is a great example. Uh, Prudential Center, because of their the seat Hall basketball program, they they have converted. They have a, one of the best curtain systems in the business.
1: Yeah. So they
2: cut they cut off their entire uh, upper level bowl system, and you and you wouldn't even know their seats up there. Right. And in addition to that you can, you know, you can do things with this. where are you placing the stage? Are you selling 180 degrees? Are you selling 220? Are you selling, you know, 360? So there's all these different configurations and formats. But the great thing about most of these arenas, and if you're, if you are, um, if there's a little bit of a question as the band's value, you can start off in the, one of the smaller configurations and then open up seats as you go along. So you can go on sale with 5,000 seats in the Prudential Center, and it sells a lot quicker and stronger than you thought. And you can systematically open up more sections, uh, to, to increase the capacity. So you have the ability to kind of, uh, for better or worse, to learn as you're going the van, the van value. And that's in a lot of venues. A lot of the, um, the WNBA venues, uh, arenas across the country have fantastic curtaining systems. Um, hey, a lot of the arenas now, uh, because they're, they, they are, they're starved for, for, um, for content and, and they've actually configured Different formats where they turn the stage around to the end bowl. Now you have a theater setup, so you can go, you know, three thousand seats in the theater. Um, you know, like all venues, they need a certain amount of content for their sponsors and for their ticket holders and their subscribers. Um, so they are really trying to be creative in how they're going to generate um, you know, generate more content. And let's be honest, there's there's not as many headliners as there used to be, and 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 so there's not as many people who can sell consistently 15,000 people a night um so th- these buildings had to adapt as well
4: now when you open up a section let's say as you're going along how were the ticket prices for those newly opened sections set or do you guys decide that beforehand
2: so it, again it, you know their ticket pricing is, is a is a fascinating thing and, and as you know when, when we first started off uh you know and, and I first started off in the business it was you know you were you were Based on, you know, what other shows were doing. You always wanted to know what other shows were doing and you were, you were kind of doing, um, doing some research that way and you'd go on sale and you didn't have a lot of flexibility. Once you went on sale, you were kind of locked into your ticket prices. Um, the technology is so good now, um, that you can, you know, th- their ticket message is something called dynamic ticket pricing, uh, where they're adjusting the ticket prices literally as they're selling tickets. It's kind of like the airline model, uh, where, you know, it's based on demand. Um, so, you know, we'll still, we'll still, as agents and artists, we'll set the ticket price, the initial ticket prices. We think this project, you know, we think this is what the market will demand for this. But we have the ability in real time with incredible data and some, and some fancy computer work that Ticket Minister has now. They can suggest, um, hey, you you blew out of your, your P1 ticket prices. It's selling at this rate. Our, our data says you can raise the next section you open. You can raise that price. 10 or 15 bucks and you will have no, um, you'll have no pushback on the prices. So now when we put shows on sale, you know, you are, you're constantly for, for, for the artists that demand the, the quick sell, right? And, and, and again, that these are, you're talking about your top level artists. Um, you are watching literally minute by minute as they go on sale and adjusting your ticket prices as it happens and saying, Hey, we're hitting some resistance in our P3 prices. Let's rescale them to, P4, and, and, and you're constantly doing that when you have an on sale like that.
0: Explain P1, P2, P3, P4, just in case some people are, don't know what that means.
2: Sure. It's just price levels, right? So your highest ticket price you refer to as P1, and then, you know, subsequently it moves down P2, P3, P4. So, uh, you know, and it's divided by sections in the arena. You know, P1 are usually your, your floor. If you're in an arena, we're talking, it's, it's different than everything. But if you're in an arena, your floor seats are usually your, your the, the first sections you're in front are P1 and the sides of the stage are P1. And as you systematically move away from the stage and the seats become a little worse, they drop down at ticket price.
0: And then you have VIP as well.
2: That's a whole other business. But yes, VIP ticketing is, is become a huge, huge, huge part of the touring business. Um, and, and the battle for who controls the income on the on the VIP has been another problem and another, another battle through through the industry but VIP ticketing is um, it, it could be a lot of things. VIP ticketing could be something as simple as um, it's a without any band or artist interaction obviously they have to approve it but it's a hey we're going to give you a great seat we're going to give you early access to the venue so you don't have to wait lines your own special entrance you may get a merch bag with it you may get. Um, you may get a, a glass of champagne. And, and and so that's, you know, that's part of the VIP all the way up to you get to sit down and have dinner with an artist. So, and, and they, and I've seen VIP packages uh, sell for, you know, the very basic level, you know, two times the face value of a, of a ticket price, which is at your very hey, early entrance to 10 to $15,000 a ticket. So they're, they're all over the place. And, and, it's become a huge, huge revenue, uh, revenue source for artists and, uh, you know, and touring bands.
0: But you mentioned there was a battle or there's been an ongoing battle in there. So can you kind of explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, so again, promoters in the past have said, hey, we're taking a financial risk in promoting your show. We're putting up money. Um, we should participate in, in the VIP. Um, and artists and artists are saying, well, why would we let you, if, if it's something that we're doing for our fans and it's requiring our work? You know, obviously we'll pay the expenses, whatever the incremental cost is to, to facilitate the VIP meet and greets or, or the, the things. But it's, but we, that's the income we're taking that is outside of what your deal would be. Um, so how the money is being treated, whether that lift and lift is the, the incremental price between what the face value of the ticket is and what you're selling the VIP is. Uh, and how that lift gets treated is, is where the battle is. Promoters are saying, we want that lift to go into the gross of the show. And when it goes into the gross of the show, if you're doing well and you're making back end, and if you're on a, on a versus deal, and let's say you're making 90% of the back end, you're still making 90% of that money, because, but it's just minimizing the promoter's risk. The artists are saying, uh-uh, we, that's, we want 100% of the money because it's really based on everything we're doing. And so that's kind of the battle that's been happening.
0: And then Jade's now going to ask you about a letter that Live Nation put out yesterday, and we're going to talk about what I see, and I'm sure you do, an upcoming battle once COVID is over and gigs start. Jade, that, uh, bring that up about the Live Nation thing.
4: Yes, I saw in a lot of their new terms, everything is listed as the promoter's sole discretion as far as like ticket prices. I know agents usually negotiate. Is there still going to be room for that going forward?
2: So the the letter you're referring to yesterday was what Live Nation put out in regards to their festivals, all right? So so that was a festival specific email, uh, and just off of memory, I think they you know they're going to ask artists to take eighty percent of what they were supposed to be paid for this year. It's rescheduled to eighty reschedule to percent, and if for some reason the, the the festival can't happen due to poor ticket sales, uh, whatever that then then the artists will only get to retain 25 percent of what they were going to pay them um and then the stickler which was which was i think the one that sent the industry into a visit yesterday was if the artist pulls out of the festival for any reason um that they were going to have to pay back double the amount that they were supposed to be paid right um it's look we're in an incredibly incredibly weird time in the industry right now uh Mm -hmm. and you know live nation is uh, and and for that matter, AEG, the two biggest promoters in the world, um, they're doing the best they can right now to figure out how to uh, keep the business and keep keep their business and the in and the content industry healthy. Um, you know, they have to do what they have to do. Uh, ultimately, though, um, you know, the artists are going to make the decisions as to what they, what, what they what they can accept or can't accept um so it, it's always the same way it's a negotiation this is what live nation is saying hey this is how we think we can keep our business afloat this is in the best interest of our worldwide employees and and, and keeping this and also in the interest in and in again what we what they believe is keeping the concert industry healthy not just right now but moving forward for the next several years um and it's not always going to match up with the artist and the artist's belief and the artist's rights and uh it's going to be a really interesting time to see how the 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 music business the live business evolves over the next you know two to three years based on um you know based on what happens look the the reality of it is, is if the artists do not agree with live nation's terms they're going to have to go find promoters and opportunities in, in other situations uh so you know the market could open up in different ways. We just don't know. It's it's it's, it's we're literally living edges with the with the virus right now, and 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 the way that the world's react to it. The music business is is living day by day, and everything is changing. What I knew today is not what I knew two weeks ago, um, and things are continuously changing. So we're trying to trying to do the best we can for our artists, um, and um, and and again, the promoters are trying to do the best they can for for their business models. They're not always going to meet, and uh, and we'll see what
0: happens from that point. And it's interesting because, like you said, Live Nation is doing what's best for them. So if you're on the artist side, you're looking at that. And again, I think it's a very good point that you bring up. This was specifically for festivals. There was an article in Rolling Stone about it that was sort of misleading because it didn't state that it was for festivals. And it wasn't until you read the terms that were the word festival in there. Right. Okay, this is not for a 50-day uh, concert tour across North America. It's just for whatever festival that they're doing. So sure. I think that was an important point that I think whoever wrote that article didn't catch, but yeah, you want to say something?
2: Well, again, you know, it's, it's interesting and, 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 you know, the live nation, you know, for the festivals, it's hard. They, they don't know how they're going to come back. They don't, we don't know what large group gatherings are going to look like. We don't know how sponsorship money is going to, reenter the world so again i don't blame I, I don't blame them for what they're doing they have to do what they need to do and what they think is going to keep you know their festivals that have some of these festivals have had you know multi, you know 10 15 20 years history um keep them so that in two or three years they still exist um and again it won't work for everybody some artists will say hey it's a great opportunity for us to do it we get it it makes sense and, and other artists will say it's not for us we can we can sell those tickets, you know, as, as a, as a festival headliner, you know, the financial decision and it'll have to be for each artist. They could say, Hey, as a, as a festival headliner, typically we can earn as much money doing our headlines in the same market. And that's where they're gonna have to start balancing things out. What is the best decision for each artist? Hey, some fight some festival artists don't have as, are not as strong of a ticket seller. They're a great festival lineup act. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they don't have as much leverage. So, again, it's going to come back to each artist and, and what their position is and how how they can, um, you know, how they can really best take care of what they need to take care of.
0: And I think it'll also be a function of of the market and, and the country because an artist is trying to build in a tour around these festival dates and the radius clauses within that. And if they know, okay, if I, in the past, played X festival and I was getting $50,000, that's paying for... Um, me going into, can, uh, you know, somewhere in Kansas or somewhere in the Midwest where I'm not going to earn as much money as that festival, um, but now they're saying I might not make as much at that festival, can I afford to go, or the state might not be opened up, or the state might be opened up, but the venue is only at 50% capacity. Um, the festival might only be at 70% capacity at that point as in the past so just all over, we're just talking about lower revenues, lower revenues for you also as an agency. So everybody's throwing in all these numbers and this routing and how much is gas going that much higher? Is it costing me more? Um, do I have a less, less people in my crew? Is my, uh, yeah, all my production even less because I can't afford this. There's so much to throw in this, this cauldron, you know, that we're boiling, trying to figure out.
2: There's no doubt about it. It is, and, and you've brought up some very good points. And some of the things that I think was one of the the, the initial things was like, Hey, everybody's gonna have to figure out how to tour less expensively last year. You know, fortunately gas, right now, gas prices are down tremendously. That that's a, that's a huge, uh, and travel. My guess is travel is not going to come back for several years and I'm hoping the touring industry comes back first. And so if travel's not coming back, gas prices could stay low. Um, there's a lot of people who need to, uh, you know, or everybody's taking pay cuts. So if you can tour a little less expensively, um, you know, maybe that works. You know, maybe that helps you keep your costs down. Maybe you can take a little less money, but it's not going to work for everybody, unfortunately.
3: Uh, before I step on Jay's act here, uh, what about, you know what um, Goth Brooks is doing with the drive-ins? I don't know if you heard, um, I guess, how many simulcasts for the one show. Uh, And that's a tremendous gross, I mean, it's unbelievable gross for no travel, actually, and so on. Do you see that uh, we, you know, that's a creative solution. Are there other creative solutions that are coming down the pike uh, beyond just the uh, idea of a drive-in movie?
2: Yeah, you're seeing a lot of, listen, you're seeing a lot of things. I think it was, there was an article the other day, BTS grossed $20 million on a live stream event, right? And now BTS is, you know, they've got a, a, a very young, active digital fan base. So, so that obviously works for them. Um, you know, there are, uh, we have artists that we're in discussions with about about doing a, a concert event in the drive-ins, just like Garth is doing. Um, there's a lot of people are talking about doing, you know, just straight up streaming events, pay-per-view events and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are there's a lot of different things that people are talking about. Um, you know, I'm a believer of and and one of the reasons I got into this business, I'm a huge fan of the actual live event about, you know, the the, the standing in a venue and watching the lights come down and watching an intro on the band come up and and I just I think, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think you'll ever be able to mimic that. I think the live business will come back when it's safe to go back into venues because people, you can't, the community feel of being, um, being in a venue and, and hearing the music and sharing that experience with someone is something I think it's very hard to mimic uh, in any other situation. So um, again, I think there's a lot of people who will, will do some, some of these types of events and they'll have some success in it. And everybody's looking at new ways to generate money. Um, But ultimately, I think that the minute there's, you know, treatments, vaccines, and and indications that everything is okay, I think you'll see the live business go back very quickly and and very strongly. I think think there's going to be an appetite for what people have
3: missed. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that already now in Jersey with the uh, opening of restaurants, outdoor seatings. It's incredible. Now, you need reservations for places you could just walk in i realize at capacity is less but still people are just so thirsty
2: hey you're seeing things uh you know i also i live out in, in bergen county new jersey as well so i, I know the area well and, and the town that i live in you know they're discussing actually shutting down the entire main street to make it a pedestrian walkway yeah. with, with tables and stuff like that again creative <laughs> solutions to times that need it i think people love it i think uh I think people, you know, where 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 you know, Americans are social people. They like interacting with other people. Um, this has been really hard, and I think that as you know, as there's some creative solutions to do it, I think you'll see everything come back again, in whatever capacity it is, they'll come back strong. Now, the the other thing you said about these, you know, the, the things that have to, you have to think about, you know, there's all these half capacities. These, these uh, you can come back with social distancing. You can put, you know, five thousand people in an arena, and that may work, and all that stuff. The problem with that is, and I'm sure everybody realizes this, is the 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 financial equations in those situations just usually don't match. Right. So if I'm a band that could sell out an arena, I make this I make X amount of dollars. Now you're cutting everything down by fifty percent, forty percent, thirty percent, whatever it is, everything else is gonna be affected the same way. And so that's been the biggest problem. You know, the the, the clubs, hey, you know clubs will open up shortly. Uh, you know, you know, we'll get a thousand seaters, we'll be able to put four hundred people in them and socially distance them. A, I don't know how you do that because how do you take a GA floor and, and make everybody stand in separate sections? I don't think that works. Um, and B, it's very hard to make the finances work on, on something like that. So uh the one place we have seen it and I have a, I have a couple clients doing it. Um uh just because it, it, it's the comedy clubs because comedy clubs were again set up as with ta- with a ta- table and chair set up um and there were certain clubs that you know get a 500 capacity i have i think there's one club in florida that's not on the 375 so it hasn't lost that much capacity you're doing the way this you know you're, you're used to doing five or six shows in a week and and so i think you'll see some of the comedy stuff come back a lot of the comedy clubs come back probably before anything else
4: now speaking off of that, do you think there's specific types of venues that are more in danger of closing than others, like where you don't really know how to social distance if you're on a GA floor and there's not a whole cup of seats?
2: I think. Listen, I think every independent venue. I think I think every venue is in, in danger of closing at this point. Um, you know, as is as the case. You know, we are as a, as a live touring business. We are the la- we're going to be the last people to come back. Unfortunately, we have a lot of things that need to happen first. We need. We need the sports, professional sports to come back. We need schools to go back into session. We need colleges and all that stuff to happen before we are able to come back. Um, and I think any, any venue that, um, that has, has to have been shut down for six months, a year, 18 months is going to be in jeopardy of closing. I, I think unfortunately, um, the entire business is going to constrict a little bit. It's going to, you know, it was a, it, the live touring business was a massive business and everybody was doing incredibly well. Managers, artists, promoters. everybody was making money. Um, it's and, and I kind of equated a little bit to to, to like a, a, the stock market. It we had this upward trajectory, and it feels like it's going to uh, with with the unfortunate situation of of, of the pandemic, it's going to kind of you know it's going to kind of correct itself a little bit. It's going to become a little bit tighter, and the money's going to become a little bit harder. Um, and you're not going to have as much ex, uh, excess in the in the business right now
0: you know what concerns me is on the level for the the artists pre-agent the artists who aren't you know drawing enough to get somebody like you to represent them i think uh, a lot of these venues um and we had chris bauman who works in the insurance task force for neva the national independent venue association on our show Mm -hmm. recently talking all about um venues and and uh, how some of them believe 90 percent of independent venues are going to go out of business but a lot of these venues are gonna be hurting so much because of maybe lesser capacity. My concern is a lot of bands, there's gonna be a pay pay to play is gonna be huge. And a lot of these younger bands are gonna be okay, you can come here and um, you'll get, instead of 70% of the door, maybe you'll get 50. But until you reach a certain threshold of tickets, you're not gonna get 50. You know, it's gonna cost you 200 bucks to to get on our stage. And then once you sell $200 of tickets or 25 tickets at whatever price. Then after that, you'll get 50%. So that's the concern, which in effect hurts younger bands. Cause some of them after a while, they're not thinking, I can't, I can't either I'm against that. It's not moral, or we don't have the money to pay to play here. So that's a concern when you talk about the minor leagues versus you're in the major leagues um, that the new talent. So maybe all that stuff will end up going online and there'll be a lot more for you to find stuff in live streaming i'm kind of talking about a few different things at once but what do you think about you know the 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 minor leagues and what's going to happen
2: i i think again you know the the, as far as getting quality if you have if you're a quality young act right um and this this changed back again when we go back and talk about where the record labels really kind of ran the music business and, and there was a kind of a change uh, it's it's got to be probably about ten years ago now, maybe a little longer than that. Um, there is access uh, to get your music out, uh, not only now you know audio, but now video streaming and all that stuff. Um, so I, I think again, the the minor league younger artists will be able to to still um, grow out of out of that phase with some of the other tools. As far as the them getting into live. Um, venues it's it's hard to say right I, again it, it, the the thought about everybody needing to recoup their losses for this year right and you're seeing that a lot and you're hearing that from in some of some of what you're seeing from you know live nation ag and and how these buildings are hey you're going to make less money because we need to recoup from our losses um it's hard it's it's a hard conversation to have because likewise the artists are losing all this money this year you know they're not touring they're losing all their revenue income so is it fair is it fair for an artist or the next crop of artists or or the next you know the, the next group of touring headliners to be responsible for helping venues and promoters recoup what they lost this year i don't know the answer to that question it's a, it's a tricky one and that's where i think you get a lot of the tensions coming right now is is hey you know venues are saying we lost so much money so we have to we have to get this money back first next year and artists are going well, wait a minute. We lost all of our income too. Why should you guys get the money back first? Again, it's 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 a tricky, it's a really tricky time right now. And and uh, I think for the most part, there's been some, some decent camaraderie in the industry about how do we take care of everybody. How, what's the, what's is there a, is there a central meeting point where you know you're not gonna the artists aren't gonna get taken advantage of because um, because you know they're in that situation where the promoters are saying, hey, how do we not get taken advantage of? There's been a camaraderie, but again, as is the case with any business and any negotiation, you're going to find out, you're going to find points where it's just not going to match up and you're going to say, hey, we're going to have to find alternatives and we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to um, how to take care of what we need to take care of. So, um, again, it's going to be a very interesting year coming. Between now and next summer, it's going to be a very interesting year to see how things happen.
0: And it's especially hard for you because your job is the middleman between the promoters who are paying the money and the artists who need the money and they're the creatives. Without the artists, there is no show, but without the buildings, without the promoters, there is no show. And without you, there is nobody putting this all together, you know? So you're almost stuck in between these yet you're earning revenue based upon what the promoter is paying the artists. So you're still, you know, kind of where you're going to lean towards. So it's, Gotta be interesting for you and there's tension, you know, in in your field.
2: Yeah, listen. I mean, let's let's be brutally honest and clear. We represent the artist. Our our mm-hmm. our, our allegiance, everything we do is artist driven, right? Not that we don't care about the promoters. We know we need the promoters for a healthy business, but we we will represent what the artist needs and wants our you know, first. That's always gonna be our first uh, first situation. Um, you know, and the job is to figure out how to make everybody happy, right? That's the, the job of the agent is is how to how to get as much for your client and, and, and still, again, keep the other side of the business healthy. If, if we, as agents and artists, um, completely destroy promoters and, and take them for too much and they're not there, and the, and ultimately it's gonna affect the business in the long haul. So you've gotta find that balancing act again. Um, and again, there's very different types of artists. There's, there's, there's artists who, um, who are going, you know, the, the, the A plus list artists are going to be able to, to demand what they want still, um, the developing artists are going to, are going to have that time coming up. And then you've got these, all these artists in that middle area that are, that, these are the ones that are being affected the most where, um, you know, they, they were able to succeed a little bit based on, uh, the, the success of the touring business in general. And now they're going to have to find their new footing, um, based on, you know, where it is. And, and, and Hey, another piece of this equation that, that, we haven't touched on that is big is, you know, what does the U S economy look like? What is the ticket buying population going to be? You know, are people going to be able to afford tickets? Um, you know, and we'll have to see how quickly the economy and the, and the, and the job market, you know, comes back. Um, but I, but you know, it's, it's another piece of the equation that we just don't know yet. We don't, I, I don't know, you know, again, without getting too much into the pandemic, because I'm not a doctor and I have no, I, I don't know if we, I don't know if we know where this is going yet. I, I, I still think there's a lot of ups and downs in this, in this process for the next at least six months. And, and, you know, and I, for the music industry, the only answer, is a vaccine. And and we need a vaccine and we need a quick because that, that's the only way we're gonna get back to any kind of any kind of real uh real healthy touring.
4: I think people are gonna be eager to go back to shows. Like you said with the economy, it's about being able to afford the ticket pricing, because the ticket prices cause only drop so low so the artists don't make money.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to have to find that point. You know, you're going to have to find, again, you asked a question a bit ago about establishing ticket prices. We're going to have to determine what those right prices are and try to figure out how to make it work for everybody.
3: I have a question. Um, on a superstar tour, let's say uh, Live Nation is going to sponsor the tour, and it's all set, it's advertised and announced Live Nation is sponsoring the 20-day tour, the 30-day tour, and so on. What is your role at that point? Because obviously they're going to use Live Nation venues, and they've negotiated the price for the tour. That's what the, one of the questions I'm asking. Uh, rather than individual.
2: Yeah. So, so Live Nation. You know, they they've set up obviously over the last you know many years. They they really have, have developed a, a, a national touring department that is fantastic, right? uh I, I have several several artists that are in their national tour models um so you know it, it's it's very similar right i still as the agent i have to sit down and go okay uh i this is what i'm looking for in a deal from live nations if i'm gonna do a national tour i have we're, we want to play 30 cities i know what those 30 cities are i know what my band's value is in each of those 30 cities um and then I, and then so i have to kind of come up with it and then i go to live nation and say hey Artist X wants to, we're, we want to do these 30 cities. We're looking for a national deal. This is what we want. So although we're not doing it individually, you still as the agent, it's very important to know what the band's value is in each particular city. So you can come up with a cumulative number and say, this is the deal that makes sense. This is why we would do this date. Because when you do a national deal, the difference is you're you're, you're, you're cross collateralizing an, an entire tour. Um, and yeah. I don't know if you need me to explain right. what that is, but basically, um, yeah. If you're doing a show individually, and I, and I go play New York City, and I, my artist my artist guarantee is $250,000, and the show sells out, and I make an extra $100,000 in percentage. In a show-by-show in a, in a show deal, that $100,000 stays with the artist, which is fantastic. Okay. The next night, I go into Pittsburgh, and I'm paid $250,000, but the promoter loses 50 grand. Well, the promoter lost 50 grand there. Unfortunately, that's their loss. It doesn't affect the artist's guarantee. Now, on a cross collateralized deal, you take those two shows, and the the extra hundred grand I made in New York uh, get fifty grand of that gets eaten up by the the money that was lost in Pittsburgh. So the whole deal is cross collateralized. So you've got to know, you've got to have a feel for again what each individual market is worth, um, and then make a deal that you're not going to end up hurting yourself because you know hey, you could have made this much money here but lost this much money here. So you've got to. The agent's job is, you know, not only to be an agent, but but we've become more producers in the world we have to know um what live nation what, what the band's value is and what live nation really ultimately should pay and listen the, the national touring model brings some great things to the, the you know they have national tour marketing and and somebody who's uh over you know assisting and overseeing the entire marketing of a tour and and and, and uniforms uh what's working in this market and, and this they, they, they've really kind of been able to pull some things together to help um to help you know national success rather than individual market success All
3: right so you brought in before the whole national tour is announced basically. oh we would we, no, we negotiate yeah we we are we again it's we
2: we the, we sit with the artists and the managers and say okay we're gonna tour we, we know we're gonna enter into a tour cycle um, and then we kind of figure out exactly what we think it's worth then we go to live nation we we negotiate to deal with live nation we take it back to the arts and say this is ah. where we're at yeah absolutely
3: Right.
0: One thing that I'm thinking back about that uh, memo that Live Nation uh, put out yesterday was uh, for merch for festivals at least they won 30% of the merch Um, is that higher for festivals than they usually took were they usually taking 20?
2: Yeah, each festival is different, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen some as 80-20s, I've seen some that are uh, you know, 70-30s you've seen some depending on you know, are is the festival making a uh, an event shirt, and are they letting the artists participate in the event shirt? And if you participate in the event shirt, you get five points more on your own merch. And <clears throat> so there's a lot of different things. I think again, um, the 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 purpose of the seventy thirty is to um, is to give Live Nation a chance to recoup income in a different area than just the, the ticket sales. I, I think it's a little less than what t- t- people typically get. Most festivals also, <coughs> excuse me, are um, their most favorite nations deals, right? So uh, the idea is that um, every artist that performs on that festival has the same deal. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a headliner on the top half of the bill, it's, it's a very easy way for an agent to protect the artists and say, this is, this is the deal we want, but it, it's, it, or the deal that we want a most favorite nation so that we know we're getting, nobody's getting a better deal than us. Um, and so uh, Live Nation in their memo has said, hey, you're, mo- you're going to get your most favorite nation's deal. It's just going to be at 70%. But it is a way for them to, to recoup some, some of their money.
0: Now, even though you as an agent, you're not getting a percentage of the revenue that comes from merch for the artists. It's interesting, though you're still involved in that negotiation, you know, and that actually goes back to what you said a couple minutes ago—that you represent the artist, you the best you can for the artist, even in areas where you don't see any revenue from.
2: Correct. I mean, that's been has been a long, a long thing in the music business ever since I've started. I've always laughed about that, but it's our job. It's our job to to, to protect the artist at every cost. And so, um, you know, we we did have artists years and years and years ago, and I won't, I won't disclose any names that they, they actually, an artist said, Hey, we'll give you, we'll pay you on the improvement on a merch deal, right? So if you were able to improve the merch deal by five or, or 10 or, or 10 points, we were able to commission, uh, the, our, our percentage on that improvement. Um, and it was, it was you know, it's, it's great. It's, it works that way. It's a bookkeeping nightmare, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, but, but again, it, it, it's kind of a professional courtesy. We, 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 we negotiate merch deals. Um, you know, you could ask, well, why, well, why do you do it? Cause he, cause if I don't, somebody else is going to do it and somebody else, you know what I mean? It's like, you got to protect your relationship with your artists. And if I'm not taking care of my artists I'm on the merchandising front, somebody else will do it.
0: Can you see, and you guys are an indie agency. Can you see some of the larger agencies again with, um, live nation changing terms of their agreements for, for festivals. Can you see maybe some larger agencies trying to change their terms with artists and saying, now we COVID, everything's different. We now need to earn a percentage of the merch. It's a whole new world. where we're changing everything. Can you see that happening?
2: Hey, I'd be more than happy if, if some of the larger agencies tried to try to shove that down their artist throats because my, my business would flourish if they did that. Um, yeah. I, 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 I don't think agents will go after that. I think that would be, that would be a silly short sighted move to go after something on the merchandise. I think, again, you, uh, you want to take care of your artists. You want to make sure your artists are earning as much money as they can. And and if you do your job, you'll get paid well on, on their tour income, not just their merchant income. Okay,
0: good. Very nice. Uh, one more question then. I think, um, uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a manager. I'm representing an artist and I'm, talking to you and i'm talking to i won't you know somebody from one of the other major you know agencies um why would i want to choose agi over one of the others
2: you know it's 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 the with the pitch that we give, right it's it's the what do you say when you walk into a room um and and you know listen i i've been i've seen it all right i've seen i've seen agents and heard of agents that go into meetings and first thing they do is they go out and they try to destroy every other agency and every other agent in the business to try to elevate themselves. And it's a, it's a tactic. It's not kind of what I do. Um, I think I sit down and, 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 you know, I, I'm fortunate to work for artist group international. It's the only, it's the only job I've had. I had it right out of literally right out of college. I, I, I I started working, I got hired to work for Dennis Arfra as his second assistant. Dennis has run AGI for years. Um, and then I moved over to work for Adam Kornfeld for about two years and then, and then was promoted to an agent. Um, and I've been very fortunate. Uh, the company before it was called artist group international used to be called QBQ. And it was the mantra for what the, uh, how Dennis set up the business, which is it was quality before quantity. Right. And, and so that's the business model that we've had and we've stuck with literally for, you know, Dennis been I think it's been 35, 40 years and I've been there for 25 years. We, we do quality work. We, we, we try to take on, we don't take on, we don't take on, uh, you know, 600 clients and try to, you know, use the old dartboard expression. Right? Let's, let's throw dartboards and see what sticks. We really focus and spend a lot of time working on our clients. Um, we try to, um, we really try to be experts in what we do. Um, and we think, you know, again, we think we do it better than anybody else. We think we, we, the amount of attention, detail, um and knowledge that we have for the touring specific part of the business um is unmatched and so uh that's what we do i walk into room and i say hey look this is what we do. look at our client roster see who we've had see which clients we've had for their entire careers hey we've had some of the biggest bands in the world billy joel uh was it's been dennis's office clients since billy since they were 19 years old right Billy Joel never left the agency. Why? Because we're doing we're doing a good job, and that's really what you do. I walk into him and say, "Hey, we're going to do the best job that anybody can do for you," and and, and here's why. And, and then you kind of go through why why you're going to do the best job. We know where we know we know where all the money is, right? We know where what the ticketing fees are and who's making which money, and and uh, and not every artist is, not every artist is going to have the ability to, to to demand that type of money, uh, but knowing that we know where that money is, it gives clients a very, uh, a big comfort level as to, oh, these guys know, these guys know so that if we do hit a certain point, we can collect on all these extra things. And, um, and it's just being really kind of being an expert in our field. And that's what we believe we are.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: And you guys don't sign contracts with artists, do you? It's all handshake deal
2: it's all handshakes. It's, uh, it, it used to be, again, when I first started off, we used to be, there used to be uh, more contracts. Um, you know, artists don't want to sign them. And, you know, to be honest with you, if we're not doing the job, why do you, how are you going to be in a, in, a, in a deal with an artist that doesn't want you to represent them? It's too hard to do, right. It, it's just, uh, it, it's too small of a business. So, you know, again, you do our job, we do it as well as we can. Um, and we have very, very, very few artists, uh, who leave the agency. I mean, once, once, once artists come to AGI they're usually there for their for their career
0: one quick here's one thing that so I'm, a, I'm an artist um you know i have my team my business manager I just did a, a live nation tour is live nation paying you and you're paying my you're taking your cut and giving the balance to me or am I collecting it all and then paying you separately it's different, right? Each, each,
2: each business model is set up differently. Um, you know, some artists take advances against a, a large national deal. Um, we typically, you know, look w- in the past, right before live nation and, and, and the, the, uh, the, the giant that they build. you know, it was the agent's job to make sure you had deposits for every show, because let's be honest, the music business wasn't always filled with upstanding, you know, righteous promoter citizens. and. and you were always worried about getting stiff and not having your money. So it was our job to make sure we had the money and there's, we still do that on a lot of, you know, a lot of promoters. If, if we're doing new festivals, new promoters that we haven't worked with the best, we're going to make sure we, we as the agency have all the money up front and we're an escrow agency. So we hold the money in escrow until after the show plays. Um, and, and so, so uh, you know, and, and then Live Nation came along and changed some of the policies. Hey, we're only going to pay 10% because they have so much action, you know, from a, a cash flow perspective. Um, but you knew, five nations money was good so you didn't worry about it um so there's different things but typically the artist will hold the agency will hold the deposit on the date um that we hold in escrow after the plays, and then we pay the artist out and uh you know whatever's left over and then the promoter will usually wire or you know pay the artist in the negative okay Mm -hmm. and
0: then the artist will then wire back to you or send back if there's
2: overflows right or percentages but yeah
0: yeah absolutely Okay, very, very interesting. Okay, all right. Well, Jade, thank you so much for bringing Peter aboard. It was
3: great. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I do have a, uh, as I'm thinking out loud, I have an early intern uh, experience over there. It was in the, I think it was in the late 80s anyway, when Rodney was still alive. So he had, as he was, as the intern, he had answered the phone and Rodney was on the other end many, many times. So, Rodney needed a contract or something delivered to his apartment immediately. So, they, so they sent Sean over, and Sean said, this is great. He's going finally get to see Rodney, meet Rodney, and then they're just exchanged that I'm the guy you talk to, and so on. So, he gets to Rodney's apartment and he knocks on the door, and uh, Rodney opens the door this much and sticks the gum out, just like this, <laughs> and takes the envelope and pulls it back in. And I was. Roddy was one of the, Roddy is one of the greatest uh,
2: greatest comic oh, personalities ever. He we have two two of my favorite pieces of art we have in, in our office. One of them is uh, it, it was the Easy Money poster, uh, and he he signed it to Dennis and said, I think it said, Dennis, you made me who I am. I hate you, which is fantastic. <laughs> And the second one, I think, was a back-to-school poster, and he said, "Dear Dennis, you couldn't book Lassie in a pet shop." And so those are <laughs> those are two pieces. You know, Rodney was when when Dennis started um, uh, the agency. Rodney was one of the first clients. Rodney yeah. came
3: from William Morris. Um, yeah, right, so. and, that, and uh, Billy Joel and uh, and the Beach Boys, I think, too. He had Beach Boys. I think Ted Nugent was on that original roster as well. Yeah, I remember. Um, it was about 1985. Yeah. Yeah, so when started uh, when when he went off on his own. When he did, when he left William Mars. Again, you know, it, it,
2: it's interesting. It's it's part of the going back to the question you asked, which is, you know, when we walk in, um, one of the things that Dennis didn't like about William Mars. And this is not a knock on William Mars. This is more of a a, a, a uh, just a overall system, the way the system the agency systems work. Was um, Dennis didn't want, like the territorial system. He
4: mm-hmm. he
2: he would he would say. You know nobody's gonna do as good of a job for my artist no other agent in my in my company as I'm going to do um, and so he didn't like the territorial system and that's why to this day AGI is still not a territorial system
4: we mm-hmm. represent
2: our client roster and I book you know my artists whether it's Motley Crue or all of those I book their shows around the world I don't pass that along to somebody else to, to, to negotiate a deal locally I do it I do every part of the world for them because again they're my client. And I, and I know, I know the intricacies of their business and, 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 I will represent them better than anybody else. would.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And by the way, we were talking about Rodney Dangerfield for those of us who are oh, at the age of 35 or something. Listening. <laughs> so check out back to school. I think 1985, Rodney Dangerfield, Sally Kellerman. I actually just saw that on uh, it was on TV about three weeks ago. So huh. yeah. Thomas Rodney Dangerfield. It's something. Oh, yes, they
3: were great, great movies. They were yeah, great movies. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Caddyshack. The ones that he was really the star, in. you know, like you just said, Back to School and Easy Money. Uh, amazing, you know, type of things. I remember the one scene where there's there's a party in Easy Money, and they're in Queens with all these houses or attached houses, and they show an aerial shot of the party in the in the backyard. And every backyard is only a little square, like 40 by 80 and so on. And every one is empty except for the one at the party, which is body to body. And if you ever lived in Queens and you know anything about it, they're hysterical, you know. It is funny. Yeah.
0: Well, that scene would be great now with masks and uh, social distancing. Oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> Been <laughs> taking
0: up about six blocks. But oh, Peter, thank you so much for appearing on Music is 101 and More. Yeah.
3: Give, Thanks uh, for uh, having me, guys. Shorts. Sure. Yeah.
0: Jade, thank you for appearing on Music Biz 101 and More and making sure that Peter appeared on Music Biz 101 and More.
1: <laughs> great.
0: Tremendous job. So, Peter, you take care. Thank you very much.
2: Stay safe, everybody.
0: Yeah. You too. So long. Bye. Bye-bye. Jade, great job today. Really appreciate that. Dr. Esteban, thank you so much for appearing on Music Biz 101 and More uh, because wow. you are going to receive a, uh, a stipend of pension for the next uh, 35 years. So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right and I'm your professor David kerr Philip, and that was Jade Donori and we appreciate you guys listening at the end of every show we do not say hello that'd be silly because at the end it's not the beginning but we're not going to say oh, hello which is Hawaiian for hello and goodbye because we're in New Jersey now I'm uh, not the Hawaii town so Dr. Seba, what do you say you say Alvinistate yes and I speak English and I say
1: Adios Adios
0: Whoa, whoa.
1: self from Didn't notice we were moving faster than just friends. Who's in control of the situation? You lose.